Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host, I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, we are going to tell you about an infamous case that is still just as mysterious as it was when it first happened back in Kansas City, Missouri in 1935. The death of an unknown man in room 1046. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. give a quick warning before going into this episode and not the typical violence warning but a warning just about how confusing this case can be there are so many unanswered questions with so many possibilities that made this case very difficult when researching and i even ended up taking an extra week to make sure i had all the information so i'm gonna try my best to tell this story so that you can follow along completely but keep in mind that most of the things are unknown and it's really not going to make sense. So trying to make sense of it just isn't worth your time. So we will work a little extra hard to make sure, well, that I get it. (laughs) So hopefully you guys can too. Yeah. So Abby, if you have questions, kind of write them down and have like an idea of what's going on. So this story begins on January 2nd, 1935, shortly after 1 p.m. when a tall man claiming to be named Roland T. Owen walked into the hotel president in Kansas City, Missouri. Roland was described by witnesses as being 20 to 30 years old, well-dressed, wearing an overcoat, about 5 foot 10, 180 pounds, with blue eyes and bushy hair. And what is bushy hair? Like curly? I'm just picturing, yeah, like curly and kind of like thick hair. I'm like envisioning like Seth Rogen type hair, like that big, bushy, curly, whatever he's got going on. (laughs) Nothing but amazingness from Seth Rogen, if you ask me. Absolutely. He was also said to have a facial scar, a scar on his scalp, and a cauliflower ear. And for those of you that don't know, a cauliflower ear is a deformity in your ear that was typically caused by some sort of physical trauma, whether at birth or uh, at some point during your life. I know that oftentimes wrestlers get it too. Yes, it is very common in wrestlers, which is a good point. So Roland checked into the hotel using a Los Angeles address and paid for a single night and asked specifically for a room that faced the inner courtyard of the hotel and not the street. As he was checking in, he explained that he had wanted to originally check into a hotel called the Mulebeck. However, they were wanting to charge him $5 per night, and he thought that was an outrageous price. What year was this again? 1935. That sounds like a good deal from where I'm sitting. That's what I thought. I was like, compared to this $80, $90, $200 that people are looking at nowadays, I would have loved to pay $5 a night. But at this time, he thought that that was too high of a price. So he ended up at the hotel president. He asked for a three-night stay at the hotel, but carried no luggage with him, only a toothbrush and a comb for his hair. Well... At least he had a toothbrush. <laughs> That's my number one thing when I go places, I guess. I typically bring clothes. Yes. But. <laughs> well, and so people thought that it was like super weird, but 
Which it definitely could be, but maybe he just wasn't planning on staying there. And then he's like, I'm just going to buy my essentials. Yeah, that's extremely possible. There was a couple weekends ago that Bryce and I had gone down to Bloomington and then ended up staying overnight and we didn't plan on it. So we showed up at the check-in with this little bag that had our, like a hairbrush and a toothbrush and toothpaste that we had just bought from the store seconds before we got to the hotel. So it could be weird. It just could be spontaneous and unplanned as well. Exactly. So I I didn't think it was as weird as people were making it out to be. But with everything else combined, this is weird. Okay. So once Roland had paid for the room, he was escorted to the infamous room number 1046 by a bellboy named Randolph Probst. When they got up to the room... The bellboy opened the door for him, and Roland put his items on the bathroom counter, took the key from the bellboy, and then left the hotel for an unknown reason. Later that day, a maid named Mary Soapdick went up to the room to clean. Mary reported that when she opened the door, Roland had the room lit very dimly by a single lamp, with the blinds closed, and he was sitting in a chair looking very nervous. Shortly after Mary had entered the room and began cleaning, the man stood up and went to leave the room. As he was walking out of his room, he told the maid to leave the door unlocked when she was finished as he was expecting a guest. Mary reported that he repeated the fact that the door needed to be left open multiple times. She finished cleaning the room and then left. Hours later, she returned around 4 p.m. to drop off clean towels and she entered the unlocked room to see Roland laying in his bed in the dark, fully dressed and staring into the darkness. Roland intently watched Mary as she performed her duties, and while she was cleaning, she noticed a note laying on the desk that read, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. So Roland never said anything to Mary the second time she came into the room? Nope. He just creepily watched her while she cleaned his room. Gotcha. And then as soon as she saw the note, she quickly finished up and then left the room. I probably would have too. It sounds a little creepy. Yeah, I would have definitely considered the room clean after not really doing much. I would have just said, bye. Here's some clean towels. I'm deucing out. We're good. No one knows really what happened overnight. Then the following morning on January 3rd, the maid returned at about 1030 in the morning. The same maid? Yes, the same maid, who had actually, just the day before on January 2nd, just returned from a vacation that she had been on. So this was the first room that she had been in, like, after she'd returned from vacation. So coming back hot. Yeah, coming back, starting strong. (laughs) The maid went to enter the room, only to find out that it was locked from the outside. However, Roland was sitting in the room in his chair, which means that someone locked him in the room, presumably when they left. There's locks on the outside of the door? Yes, but you have to have a key in order to lock it from the outside. Still a little weird, but mm, okay. I'm not sure. I don't (laughs) know that it was typical. When I was reading, it said this hotel specifically had this, so I'm not sure why. But this means that somebody left the room with a key to the room which would likely be someone who works there or what is it the key that corresponds with the person in the room it would be the key that corresponded with the person in the room or 
the maids and the bellboys have their own keys to the rooms, but they don't know that it... They She originally thought that Roland wasn't going to be in the room. And then she entered the room and he was there sitting in his chair again. So it was a super weird situation to walk into. And once again, he only had the small lamp on again. So the room was super dim. And Mary said that it seemed like he was just staring into the darkness again. She said that the mood in the room seemed to be very intense while she was cleaning, but she worked in silence while he once again just watched her. The maid reports that the phone rang and Roland answered it, listened to the other person speak, and then said to the person on the other end of the phone, quote, no, Dawn, I don't want to eat. I am not hungry. I just had breakfast, end quote. Then repeating more firmly, no, I am not hungry. He wasn't hungry. <laughs> and Don just didn't understand that, apparently. I don't know. He then hung up the phone and turned to the maid and mentioned something about the Mulebeck. He also then started interrogating Mary about where she had been in the hotel and what her purpose was at this hotel. She reportedly felt really uncomfortable from this exchange and quickly left the room, which is... Completely expected. I would probably also leave very quickly. I find it weird that he keeps bringing up the other hotel to the people who work in this one. Yeah, I don't really have an answer for why that happens. It's not something that ever gets answered. He just keeps bringing it up and talking about this outrageous $5 a night price. He was just worked up about the price still, you think? I think so. That's all that I can think of. I'm not sure. However, even after feeling uncomfortable and having these odd exchanges with Roland the last few times, Mary continued to do her job and returned later in the day on January 3rd with fresh towels. She could hear through the door that there were two men in the room talking. She knocked on the door and asked to enter the room to bring fresh towels, and Mary said that the man that responded was not Roland, And he spoke very harshly, saying they did not need any new towels and that she should go away from the room. So Mary just walks away, although slightly confused as she knew that there were no towels in the room at all as she had taken them earlier in the day. So I have no idea what this argument was about or who could have been in the room with Roland. It might have been Don, but we don't really know. So I guess it just depends on the person, but if I were in a discussion with somebody and a maid was knocking on the door saying, towels, do you want the towels? I would just be like, no, and I would just go get some later from the front desk. I didn't really think about it that way at first, but yeah, maybe that's all it was. I And some people want the towels right then. You never know. I mean, I guess it just varies per person. I guess for me, it would just make sense for her to bring the towels, but it's possible. To each their own. So I can't help but wonder, though, knowing the end result, what would have happened if Mary had entered the room at that point in time? If the end of the story would be different? Mary stated to the police that Roland was either worried about something or afraid. He always wanted to kind of keep in the dark, was her exact quote. 
The next morning, on Friday, January 4th, around 7 a.m., the hotel operator noticed that Roland's phone had been off the hook without being used for over 10 minutes, and so she sent the bellboy Randolph Probst up to room 1046 to see what was going on. When Randolph arrived at the door, he noticed a Do Not Disturb sign hanging on the door, but he knocked anyways. A voice from inside the room told him to come in. And when he tried, he realized the door was locked. Randolph told the man through the door that it was locked and he was unable to enter the room. But the man just responded by saying, turn on the lights. So Randolph continued to pound on the door for several minutes, letting him know like the door was locked. He can't get in, but he got no other response. He shouted at the man through the door, telling him to put the phone back on the hook and then walked away from the room to get back to work. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Around 8.30 that morning, the same hotel operator noticed the phone was still off the hook, so she sent a different bellboy, Harold Pike, up to the room to see if he could fix the situation. Harold knocked on the door and got no response, so he decided to use his pass key and enter the room. When he entered, he noticed a fully naked Roland laying in his bed with dark stains on the sheets around him, and so he just assumed that he was hungover. So... <laughs> I have another question for you. What did he just think the dark stains were like spilled drinks or something and he was passed out or? He didn't really say what he thought the dark stains were, which when researching this episode, I watched the BuzzFeed Unsolved video about it. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever watched them, but they're pretty funny. And the one guy was just like, wouldn't you know like that those aren't your sheets because you work in this hotel and they did he just think it was like part of the sheets? Like did he think that the stains were actually like uh, part of the design? Well, and likely, I mean, most of the time hotel sheets are white. So wouldn't it show up as like red or dark brown stains? Like not like a liquid stain. Yeah, but all the lights are off. I don't know. I just think Harold Pike kind of missed something here. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's too weird to just be like, all right, I'm gonna head back out. <laughs> He, yeah, he just assumed that he was hungover and I guess that it was spilled alcohol. I don't know. Harold put the phone back on the hook and left the room as quickly as he had entered. About an hour later, the operator noticed that somehow the phone was off the hook again. The original bellboy, Randolph Probst, was told to go up there and see what was going on this time. Randolph knocked a few times, but to no surprise, he received no response from anyone in the room. So he used his key to enter. When he entered the room, he found Roland kneeling on the ground in front of the door, holding his head in his hands with blood surrounding him on the floor. Randolph turned on the lights and looked around and noticed there was blood all around the room, on the walls, on the bed, covering the bathroom and the floor. Randolph ran back out of the room, 
probably traumatized, looking for his manager, and they called the police immediately. Question. And I don't know if this is relevant, but was he kneeling on the ground still not clothed? Or did he get dressed at this point? I believe he was still naked. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. Somehow that makes a difference. It's a little bit more strange. (laughs) Yeah. So... When police arrived, the first thing that Roland told them was that he fell against the bathtub. <laughs> Just like splattered blood all over? Yes. <laughs> Naturally. So this pretty much just made the police laugh. Like, what? Because it didn't even begin to explain what had happened to him. The police could see multiple severe bruises on his neck from strangulation. His wrists, ankles, and neck all had ties around them. They were also able to see that he had been stabbed repeatedly in the chest with a knife, with his lung being punctured and his head being beaten with something. How is he still alive right now and talking? I don't know. He must have been a fighter, but this bathtub really beat him up. It stabbed him. (laughs) Bathtubs could strangle. I didn't know that bathtubs had access to knives. They're aggressive nowadays. Oh, wait, no, back then, I guess. They were aggressive back then. They've improved now. It was the clawfoot tubs. They were really clawing you. <laughs> okay. Roland told the police that he had not been attacked, though, and this was just from the fall into the bathtub. However, it was very obvious that it was from much more than a fall, and police believed that somebody had attacked him about six to seven hours before they arrived, meaning that when the previous bellboy had been in the room, Roland had already been attacked. So I wonder if he was laying on the bed, like they'd attacked him and took the ties off and took them with them, so there's no evidence, so he was still kind of like passed out from the injuries when that one bellboy was in there. That's kind of what I'm thinking is that he was just like passed out at that point. But it kind of makes you wonder around 730 in the morning when they were knocking on the door and somebody said, come in, who that was. Yeah, I feel like it was probably whoever attacked him. You would think because if I had been stabbed, I probably wouldn't be like, chill, come in. I need some towels to soak up my blood. (laughs) (laughs) Knew you were going to say that. Bring them in. (laughs) Bring them in right now. (laughs) Roland slipped into a coma shortly after saying that and was quickly taken to the hospital where he died about 18 hours later on January 5th, 1935. The room that Roland had been staying in was investigated and this just led to more and more questions as if we didn't have enough already. There was not a single piece of clothing found in his room, and all of the complimentary items you typically get when staying at a hotel, like shampoo, towels, and everything, were all missing from the room. They did find a label from a tie laying on the floor and four fingerprints on the lampshade, presumably from a woman. However, these prints were never identified. Also, it's, unless they were bloodied prints, but it's a hotel... I can imagine they're not wiping down the lamp every time they go in and clean. And even if they are, I mean, Mary was the maid. It's possible those fingerprints could have been from Mary. Definitely. They also found a cigarette that had not been smoked, an unopened bottle of diluted sulfuric acid, and a hairpin. Two water glasses were also in the room, one that was broken with a jagged piece missing and later found in the bathroom sink, and the other one unbroken. 
Do they think that that was used to stab him or was it definitively a knife that stabbed him? I didn't find what it was that stabbed him. Nowhere did it ever say. After Roland died, police posted a sketch of him in the newspaper and asked if anyone recognized this man. However, they got no answers other than to learn that this man was, in fact, not Roland T. Owen. And he had checked into the hotel using a false name. The only part of his story that he had told the staff at the hotel president that was true was that he had previously been at the Mulebeck. However, he had actually checked into that hotel under the name Eugene Scott, who was also a man supposedly from Los Angeles. I thought he had said that he didn't check into the Mulebach because it was too expensive. Correct. He did. That's just another flaw in whatever he's doing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he had apparently checked into multiple hotels using this alias of Eugene Scott. So he had checked into the Mulebach, the Kansas City Hotel, and the St. Regis Hotel. And the staff at the Regis Hotel stated that Roland had another man with him at the time of his check-in. However, when police investigated further, they learned that there was no man matching the description missing from Los Angeles, and there was no man under either of these names missing from Los Angeles. So both Eugene Scott and Roland Owen were false aliases. They also never found out who the man was that he was checking in with. It is believed that it could have been Don, as that was a name that was mentioned multiple times when he was staying at the hotel president, but that's unknown. Around 11 p.m. that night on January 3rd, a man named Robert Lane, who worked for the water department, saw a man running down the street about a mile and a half from the hotel president. This man was only wearing pants and an undershirt, which seemed odd to Robert as it was really cold out. I mean, it was January, so it was winter time. He wasn't wearing shoes or anything? Apparently not. He might have been, but everything I found, all they said was that he was wearing pants and a shirt, and that was it. Robert noticed a deep scratch on the man's arm, and the man was apparently cupping his hands, leading Robert to assume he was hiding blood from another wound. Robert asked the strange man what had happened to his arm, and he just responded by saying, I'll kill him tomorrow. And that's with the expletives taken out of his comment. The man asked to be dropped somewhere so that he could catch a taxi, and Robert dropped him off in a taxi stand and never saw the man again. It is believed that the man Robert interacted with that night was actually Roland Owen. So this man didn't call the police or anything when the guy said he was going to kill somebody tomorrow? No. (laughs) Why would you do that, Abby? (laughs) Okay. I don't know what was going through this Robert guy's mind, but I don't know if he just thought that Roland was just super angry about something and it was just more of like a figure of speech, I guess. But if somebody came up to me covered in blood in the middle of the night and says that he is going to kill somebody tomorrow, I'd probably be a little concerned. At that point, you might want to get somebody else involved, like the police. Or if he's bleeding enough, I mean, you'd want to call 911 for him to get medical attention. No, you just drop him at the taxi stand (laughs) and go on with your night. We come to find out some information from the woman staying in the room next door to Roland. Her name was Jean Owen. However, she had no relation to him. 
She told police that she heard noises throughout the night that sounded like multiple men and women talking loudly and cursing. She had considered calling down to the front desk to complain, but never did for some reason. They did later find out that there was a wild party going on in room 1055 that night, though, and it's possible that she had just overheard that party and it wasn't coming from Roland's room at all. The elevator operator, Charles Blocker, also told police that a commercial woman, which is more commonly now known as a prostitute, came into the hotel to find a man in room 1026, but she never ended up finding this specific man. However, she did find a man on the ninth floor and had Charles take them to the 10th floor of the hotel. And then about 4 a.m., she left the hotel. And 15 minutes after that is when the man that she was with left as well. Who these two people are is still unknown. But it is wondered if she was actually looking for somebody in room 1046, which would have been Roland. And that this woman and this man was actually who Jean Owen had heard from her room. So she came to the hotel like she was hired and then just didn't find the room and ran into someone else who was like, hey, that's I'll pay you. (laughs) Kind of what I understood. And I just want to make sure I had it right. Yeah, that that's how I understood it was she was hired and then couldn't find the man that she was looking for. But some other man was like. Hey, I'll pay you. <laughs> okay. Many people came forward with tips about the true identity of this mysterious man. One of these was Robert Lane, the man that had given him a ride to the taxi. A woman then called in and said that this man lived in Clinton, Missouri, but I don't believe that she gave a proper name for him. Multiple bartenders came forward and claimed to have seen Roland with many women coming into the bars. There was even a wrestling promoter, Tony Bernardi, who came forward and said that Roland had visited him several weeks earlier in December because he wanted to sign up for wrestling matches. But the name that he was given at the time was Cecil Warner. That's interesting. Remember earlier we were talking about the cauliflower ear being prevalent in wrestlers sometimes. Yes, that's why I said that that would kind of come back (laughs) into play. So that's possible. It was starting to become very obvious that this man did not want to be found by someone or something for one reason or another. And that was why he had now used three different aliases that we know of. So even though he's not really Roland, I'm just going to keep calling him Roland for the rest of the story so that it's not super confusing. When the trail of this man's true identity went cold, they started looking into who this Don guy might be. They believed that Don was the man that told Mary, the maid, that they did not need any towels, but this wasn't something that they could prove. They also wondered if he was the unknown man with Roland at the Regis when he went to check in. They questioned whether or not Don could have been in some sort of love triangle with Roland, and that would have explained the anger overheard by the maid and the hairpin found in the room after the murder. But none of these questions ever had any answers. I have a hard time with um, stuff like, like this case where there's a hairpin found in the room or other things. It's like, I just can't imagine that the room is getting that thoroughly cleaned that it couldn't possibly have been there from a previous occupant. Oh, exactly. I can go to a hotel and check in with 30 bobby pins and leave with two. And (laughs) probably 10 of them at least are in that room. The rest are probably in the rest of the hotel somewhere. Oh, yeah. And you're not picking up everything and vacuuming. I just... It's like, um, well, in the Velisca case we covered... 
they're talking about finding a piece of keychain on the ground in the house, but there had been a ton of neighbors and other people who were in there. And Mike, I don't think you could conclusively say it's from the scene of the murder, I guess. it. I mean, it's at the scene, but it's not necessarily tied to the crime. Exactly. So I'm not sure why they kept like going back to that, but they were kind of grasping at straws for any sort of theory as to what could have happened to this man. They began to prepare for the funeral of this unknown man in March, which was months after the murder had happened, when they received an anonymous call from a man claiming to be Roland's brother-in-law. The man claimed that Roland had been engaged to his sister and had, in fact, cheated on her, which led to his eventual fate. He basically just said that cheaters get what's coming for them. So did they investigate this guy further? They have no idea who this man was. Oh, well, that's not helpful. Nope. He told police that they were on the wrong track with whatever they were doing. <laughs> whatever track they even were on. <laughs> I don't think that they were on one. I think they were just kind of off-roading at this point. But <laughs> he didn't say if that was in regards to who Roland was or who had murdered Roland. He just said that they were on the wrong track and told the police that they were not to bury his body in a potter's field, which is a burial ground for the unknown so he then paid for the funeral expenses for roland by sending in a wad of cash wrapped in a newspaper but police never figured out this man's identity and that trail went cold as well the funeral happened at memorial park cemetery with the only guests being the officers investigating the case there were no friends or family of this man that showed up to say their goodbyes there wasn't even an enemy of any sort at this funeral, which is kind of really sad. There was an anonymous note sent to the funeral that said, quote, love forever, Louise, end quote, and was sent with money and flowers. What's the point of sending the money? Where's that going to? I don't know. I don't know if this person that sent it didn't know that the funeral expenses have already been paid for by this other mysterious man. And so they wanted to help pay for that. I, I don't know where this money even ended up going. I'm hoping that they at least donated it to something. They did learn that the flowers were sent from Rock Floral Company, and a woman had called in and asked for 13 American Beauty roses to be sent to the funeral for Roland Owen, and she claimed that she was doing it for her sister. However, police never found out who the woman was that sent this gift or who Louise was or could have been. Owen was officially buried at Memorial Park Cemetery in March of 1935. So that makes me wonder if the sister was the one that Roland possibly cheated on. That's what I'm kind of led to believe because now we've got two people calling in talking about some unknown female. Nothing really happened with this case until late 1936, when a woman named Eleanor Ogletree contacted the police and stated that she was from Birmingham, Alabama, and that she had seen a photo of Roland in a magazine that talked about his case. Like I said, they were kind of trying to like really get his image out there to know who he was. And when she saw it, she immediately knew it was her long-lost brother, Artemis Ogletree. Eleanor stated that Artemis had left home in April of 1934 
and it had been a strange disappearance as he had supposedly sent three separate typed letters starting about a year after he disappeared to their mother, Ruby Oldtree. But he didn't know how to type, and she said that the tone of the letters did not match what they would expect from Artemis. The last letter apparently was him saying that he wanted to sail to Europe and see the world, and then they just never heard from him again until they received an odd phone call. This call came from Memphis, Tennessee, from a man claiming to be named Jordan. And he told Ruby that her son Artemis had saved his life in Egypt. And then he had married a wealthy woman and settled down. And he claimed that Artemis was still there living in Egypt with this other female. I also read somewhere that he had also claimed that Artemis had died in Egypt and was buried somewhere there. So I'm not sure 100% which account actually came from him because I did hear both. But either way, this Jordan man said that Artemis was in Egypt. So then if this theory is correct, Roland, quotations around that, from the hotel room is not Artemis. They're two separate people. That was correct, then yes. Okay. But could have been rolling yeah so they sent photos of artemis to the police and the pictures of artemis looked very similar to the sketches of roland and there'll be a photo of that on our social media of the sketches of roland and even the facial scar was the same between the two so if artemis was roland that would have put him at about only 17 years of age when he was murdered and based on the sketch that they have of roland i'm not sure that i would put him at that age. Abby, I'm going to show you a photo of him and kind of tell everybody what you what your initial thought is. I don't think I would say he was 17 from the sketch. He looks like he would maybe, I would say between, I don't know, like 23 and 28 or something. But then again, there are some 17-year-olds who look really old and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, based on the sketch, I kind of think that he looks more in his 30s, I would say. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't put him at 17. But I know that the radiocarbon dating wasn't around until the late 1940s. So it, I don't know that they could have even like been able to determine the age of a person back in 1935. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly when that came around or how they decided that in autopsies. If anybody knows, feel free to email us because I'm not sure. <laughs> this just kind of adds more questions, though. So if Artemis was Roland, so we're going on that theory at the moment. If he was Roland, then how did she get the letters supposedly from Artemis, the mother? Because those letters came after Roland had already died, months after. I know that you'd said the tone of the letters didn't seem like it sounded like Artemis. Like, I wonder if it was somebody trying to cover their tracks, maybe his murderer or something. And that's possible. That's kind of what I thought was maybe it was running with this theory. Maybe Artemis was Roland and somebody had killed Roland slash Artemis, sent the letters to his mother to throw off a little bit, then called claiming to be Jordan from Egypt. And that and came up with this story that Artemis was actually living in Egypt. And his story just had to do, like, it was to kind of throw him off and make the mom think that this wasn't even Artemis. And then leave the police not knowing who Roland really is. And then it kind of just 
not knowing who the victim is makes it really hard to determine who the murderer is. Okay, so Artemis left home. When did he leave home again? In April of 1934. At what age was he? 17, I believe, when he... He was either 16 or 17 when he left. Yeah. So the family received a couple letters after he left, but those letters were also after they found the body of Roland. I just wonder why even mess with it if he's already left home. Why would you even go through the trouble of trying to come up with all this story and send letters and all this stuff? Does that seem like... It feels like it would somehow draw more attention to you. I kind of agree. I'm I'm not sure. Like I said, there's just so many questions and so many things that don't make sense about Artemis and about Roland and anything in this case, really. It's a ball of confusingness. I just personally don't see the Artemis and I don't see him being Roland, I guess, personally. Yeah. And the police have never even officially ruled that Roland was Artemis. They still don't know who Roland is to this day. And they thought that maybe Artemis was Roland, but like it was never actually declared that. So a theory that also comes up is that not even about the identity of who Roland was, but maybe that Roland decided to commit suicide. But This theory has been ruled out by the police and by me because there is no way he was committing suicide by beating the crap out of his head, strangling himself, and then being like, well, that didn't work. I'll stab myself and pretend that I fell onto a bathtub. It'd be an absolutely crazy way to try and commit suicide and not effective. I feel like if you want to kill yourself, you're doing something that would probably end in death instead of... Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. No, I mean, he was in a hotel that was at least 10 stories high. Why didn't he just jump off the roof or out the window or anything other than this mysterious chain of events? I agree. So I don't put much thought into that theory at all. The case has been reopened by the police many times to find the killer and to find the identity of Roland. For the first time being in 1937 and then most recently in 2003... In 2003, John Horner was a Kansas City librarian, and he received a call from an anonymous person who claimed that they had found a box that had belonged to a deceased elderly with multiple newspaper articles from Roland's murder that had been arranged very specifically. The caller also said that there was, quote, something mentioned in the newspaper stories, quote, that was found in this box, but they never specified what that something could have been. And who made this phone call, what was found, anything about it is still unknown. So once again, we're at another dead end. That's one of those ones that I wonder if police was, they're kind of withholding information that could be damning to figure out who murdered him. Possibly, but it's been so many years that if the person that committed this murder is still alive, they would be at least 84 years old and... That's if a newborn baby is out there murdering people. And I think somebody would assume that whoever the killer was was 18 years old-ish. So that would make them about 102 years old now. So I highly doubt the murderer is even still alive. So it makes me kind of question, like, why the police feel they would need to hide the identity or, like, who could have killed them or what was found in that box that's so 
secretive. I can understand that. At this point, it just kind of seems moot to do something to keep that information, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of just how I felt about it. This case has so many unanswered questions, like who was Roland T. Owen actually? Who paid for his funeral expenses? Why was he always sitting in the dark in the hotel room? Who is Don? Who is the unknown female that was supposedly in his room? Who murdered him? Who attacked him before Robert Lane picked him up and gave him a ride? And if Owen was Artemis, then who sent the letters to his mother? Unfortunately, these are all questions that I don't think we're ever really going to get an answer for. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica Abby. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much.